0: Good morning and welcome to you all here uh, in church and also those who are listening uh, uh, listening to the stream service. Uh, Good morning and uh, Duncan will be continuing the preaching service from Acts with the theme of a message to die for when he will take us through the story of Stephen's martyrdom for the gospel and as a call to worship I will read the abridged lyrics of Man of Sorrows which was a hymn written by Paul Bliss in the 1800s. Man of sorrows, what a name, for the Son of God who came ruined sinners to reclaim. Bearing shame and scoffing rude, in my place condemned he stood, sealed my pardon with his blood. Guilty, helpless, lost were we, blameless Lamb of God was he, sacrificed to set us free. He was lifted up to die, It is finished, was his cry. Now in heaven, exalted high. When he comes, our glorious king, all his ransomed home to bring. Then anew this song we'll sing. Hallelujah, what a saviour.
1: Well, let me add to Robin's welcome. It's lovely to have you with us today, and uh, it's lovely to be back with you as well. Turn with me again to Acts chapter 6, if you have a Bible. uh, As Robin mentioned, uh, there were printouts of the passage available. Uh, I'm sure if you uh, really want one, someone could fetch one for you, but uh, please do look up that passage. Um, Because really what we come to in Acts chapter 7 especially is a long speech. And there's lots of speeches in the book of Acts But this one in Acts 7 is the longest by some margin. And it tells us that this is a significant moment in the life of the church. Luke, who writes the book of Acts, he gives it so much space. That in itself tells you this is significant. This day marked a new era, as we'll see in coming weeks. A painful one, but a fruitful one. This is the story of Stephen, who we were introduced to in Acts 6 a few weeks ago. He was one of the first deacons appointed to oversee the distribution of practical care in the life of the church. Well, here we see that Stephen was a powerful defender of the gospel. He declared the most important message that human beings could ever hear, and it proved to be a message to die for. Throughout chapter 6, Stephen is described in remarkable ways. Verse 3, he's full of the Spirit and wisdom. Verse 5, he's full of faith and the Holy Spirit. Verse 8, he's full of grace and power. And when the Bible speaks of someone being full of something in that way, it means to be utterly controlled by. So try putting that into those passages, utterly controlled by the Spirit and wisdom. And I think this is important to bear in mind, because we kind of have this idea in the back of our heads that if only I was a better person, then people would like me. If only I was a better person. People would listen to me. People would respect me. If we were better Christians, then the church would be more accepted in the world around us. Stephen's experience here shows us that following Jesus can get you in trouble. Following Jesus can get you in trouble. Because here is a guy who is presented to us as a dedicated follower of Jesus, something that comes through not just in his actions, but just in his demeanor, the kind of person that Stephen was, this fullness of the Spirit that he had, it makes him like Jesus. We're going to see this at the end of chapter 7 especially, but what did we see at the end of chapter 6? His face, it seemed to shine like an angel as if he had been in the very presence of God. And in a sense, it shouldn't surprise us, but it does, doesn't it? Following Jesus can land you in trouble. After all, Jesus was rejected. He was falsely accused. He was brutally treated. He was murdered. Why wouldn't it be the same for those who follow him? Well, we see that even in Jerusalem where this takes place, uh, Jerusalem the place where the temple was, this great center of the Jewish religion, Jews belonged to synagogues. They were local places of worship. And it it seems that Stephen's synagogue was the one mentioned here in verse 9, This synagogue of the freed men. Probably called that because originally, whenever it was founded, it was made up of, of freed slaves. Synagogue of the Freed Men. Well, since becoming a Christian, Stephen didn't cut himself off from these Jews who he shared synagogue with. No, he took the message of Jesus to them. He shared it there. But it created a problem. Do you see that in verse 10? They could not withstand the wisdom and the spirit with which he was speaking. As we're going to see, Stephen was a man who knew his Bible. He knew that the Jewish Bible, our Old Testament, was all pointing to the coming Messiah. And Stephen could do better than that. He could see that Jesus was that promised Messiah. His birth, his life, his ministry, his death, his resurrection, his ascension into heaven, all of that, observed by witnesses, was fulfilling these old scriptures. And in this synagogue, no one could refute Stephen. Now, in your experience, when someone loses the argument, what do they tend to do? Do they tend to admit defeat and change their mind? Well, it's rarely what I do, if I'm honest, and it's rarely what people do, and it is certainly not what happens here. They hold their line, and instead they try to win by other means they try to cancel Stephen, and they do so with dishonesty. They bribe these false witnesses to speak against him, and they bring serious charges. You see them in verse 11. We have heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and against God. Now, bear in mind, the penalty for blasphemy was death. And so they drag Stephen before a Jewish court. The ruling council puts him on trial in verse 12, and the charges are brought. Well, what kind of blasphemy was it? Two charges. Number one, speaking against the temple. That's what this holy place is, saying Jesus would destroy it. The second charge was that he was speaking against the law, saying that Jesus would change the law that God delivered to Israel through Moses. It shouldn't surprise us, but it does. Jesus said in Matthew 5, Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. In other words, Stephen's experience here is living out what Jesus said promised would happen, he says, following me can get you in trouble. How important to remember this because we so often think in such short-term categories. By that I mean when difficulty or opposition comes to the Christian or to the church, our first instinct is to assume that we, we must be doing something wrong, that is not at all necessarily the case. In fact, if people hate you and they hate you because you follow Jesus, then in biblical terms that is painfully normal. That is painfully normal. Christian, remember, when that happens to you, you are in the best company because it is Jesus they hate, not you. And it's the same with Stephen. These people hate Jesus, and they hate what they hear and see of Jesus in his follower. And so Stephen is called to answer the charges into chapter 7. And I believe that Stephen's message actually today is more important than anything I could say about it. Typically when chapter 7 is read, um, it is heavily edited just because it's so long. But this morning I'm going to propose that we'll hear all of Stephen's sermon. So follow along in your Bible if you can. Stephen shows us in his defense certain things that Christians understand. Certain things that Christians understand. Acts chapter 7, the high priest said, are these things so? And Stephen said, brothers and fathers, hear me but promised to give it to him as a possession and to his offspring after him, though he had no child. And God spoke to this effect, that his offspring would be sojourners in a land belonging to others who would enslave them and afflict them for 400 years. But I will judge the nation that they serve, said God, and after that they shall come out and worship me in this place and he gave him the covenant of circumcision. And so Abraham became the father of Isaac and circumcised him on the eighth day. And Isaac became the father of Jacob and Jacob of the 12 patriarchs. And the patriarchs, jealous of Joseph, sold him into Egypt. But God was with him and rescued him out of all his afflictions and gave him favor and wisdom before Pharaoh, king of Egypt, who made him ruler over Egypt and over all his households. And he died, he and our fathers, and they were carried back to Shechem and laid in the tomb that Abraham had bought for a sum of silver from the sons of Hamor in Shechem. But as the time of the promise drew near, which God had granted to Abraham, the people increased and multiplied in Egypt until there arose over Egypt another king who did not know Joseph. He dealt shrewdly with our race and forced our fathers to expose their infants so that they would not be kept alive. At this time, Moses was born, and he was beautiful in God's sight. And he was brought up for three months in his father's house, and when he was exposed, Pharaoh's daughter adopted him and brought him up as her own son. And on the following day, he appeared to them as they were quarreling and tried to reconcile them, saying, "'Men, you are brothers. Why do you wrong each other?' But the man who was wronging his neighbor thrust him aside, saying, "'Who made you a ruler and a judge over us? Do you want to kill me as you killed the Egyptian yesterday?' At this retort, Moses fled and became an exile in the land of Midian, where he became the father of two sons. And when forty years had passed, An angel appeared to him in the wilderness of Mount Sinai in a flame of fire in a bush. When Moses saw it, he was amazed at the sight. And as he drew near to look, there came the voice of the Lord. I am the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham and of Isaac and of Jacob. And Moses trembled and did not dare to look. Then the Lord said to him, take off the sandals from your feet Did you bring to me slain beasts and sacrifices during the 40 years in the wilderness, O house of Israel? You took up the tent of Moloch, and the star of your God, Raphan, the images that you made to worship, and I will send you into exile beyond Babylon. Our fathers had the tent of witness in the wilderness, just as he who spoke to Moses directed him to make it according to the pattern that he'd seen. Our fathers in turn brought it in with Joshua when they dispossessed the nations that God drove out before our fathers. So it was until the days of David, who found favor in the sight of God and asked to find a dwelling place for the God of Jacob, but it was Solomon who built a house for him. Yet the Most High does not dwell in houses made by hands. As the prophet says, heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. What kind of house will you build for me, says the Lord, or what is the place of my rest? Did not my hand make all these things? You stiff-necked and uncircumcised in heart, and you stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in heart and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit, just as your fathers did, so do you. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the Righteous One, whom you have now betrayed and murdered, you who received the law as delivered by angels, and did not keep it. Well, this is where Stephen's message abruptly stops. Not only is he clear on the history of Israel… He understands where Jesus fits into that history. And he wants to show the court that what he believes and what he teaches is not some new project that God is working on, but is the fulfillment of what God has always been doing in human history. And so Stephen tackles the charges against him here. Two defenses. Number one, God is bigger than you think. God is bigger than you think. Against the charge that He spoke against the temple, He shows them the greatness of God. God has never been constrained by bricks and mortar. He proves it repeatedly. When God called Abraham, the father of the Israelites, he wasn't in the promised land. He was in Mesopotamia among the pagans. In fact, Abraham never got a square foot of inheritance in the promised land, and yet God was with him. God promised a future to his offspring. And then from verse 9, you move to Joseph. Don't know if you noticed how many times the word Egypt kept coming up in this message of Stephen's. In Egypt, long before there was a temple, long before there was a promised land of their own, God moved Pharaoh to treat Joseph favorably. God was with Joseph. And so God rescued his people from famine. Then we come to Moses, and where is he? He is in Egypt. God moved the wicked Pharaoh's daughter to take him in and raise him. Even when Moses fled from Egypt, he was in the wilderness of Midian, and God met him there in a burning bush. And Moses was ordered to remove his sandals, why? Because the place where he stood, in the wilderness, in the desert, was holy ground. Because it's where God is, that place is holy. God is not restricted by national boundaries. He is not contained by the walls of a temple. God used Moses powerfully. In the temple? No. In the promised land? No. In Egypt, at the Red Sea, in the wilderness, this is where God was working. The favor that David knew with God was accomplished without a temple. And even when it was constructed by Solomon, it was under the understanding that God needs no building, neither can He be contained within it, because for God, heaven is His throne, the earth is His footstool. And so Stephen makes the point that it is not blaspheming against God's character to see that in Jesus we see clearly that there is not some single place of worship on the earth. No, God is now in His people. The place of true worship is in Christ Himself. He is the true temple, and it's only through Him that anyone can approach God in worship. how significant this reality will be for the church in in the book of Acts at this stage of its history. It's a way to spread its message out of Jerusalem. And this is the reality that they will take with them. Wherever God's people go, there He is with them. This was the promise of Jesus to his followers, when sending them out into all the world to make disciples. He said, behold, I'm with you even to the end of the age. And it's a precious promise to Christians today as well. Where are you heading tomorrow? Into a workplace? Into school? Where might you be heading in future days? Overseas as a missionary? Maybe you'll be sharing your testimony with someone over a coffee this week. Jesus is with His people in all of it. Wherever it takes them, God is with them. But Stephen was charged with blaspheming against the law of Moses. And Stephen is clear in this defense as well that following Jesus honors Moses. Following Jesus honors Moses. And so you see Stephen recognizes that it was Moses whom God used uh, from verse 35 to lead their ancestors out of Egypt. He is the one to whom God delivered, as he put it in verse 38, living oracles, living oracles. Moses is the one who promised that there would be another prophet like him that would be raised up from among the Jewish people. No, Stephen sees that far from rejecting or changing the law of Moses, followers of Jesus have come to understand the full significance of the law that Moses gave. They treasure it. Jesus himself said he had not come to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. And so when we read those passages that we often find very hard, those law passages in the Old Testament… It is actually helping us to understand what Jesus has done. He has fulfilled all of that. Moses, who promised that Jesus would come, they don't speak against Moses. We rejoice in Moses' message. And this is such a valuable Christian perspective. Because if we're honest, we often struggle to know what to do when we read the Old Testament. It all seems that little bit further removed from us. But Stephen is clear that we need to understand the Old Testament. We need to grasp that it represents the essential foundations. It's it's a glorious anticipation of God's great plan to save His people from their sin. The Old Testament is pointing to Jesus. Every part of it finds its reason for being in Jesus Christ. There's another thing that Stephen understands, not so much in defending himself against charges, but he understands that the rejection of God is normal. The rejection of God is normal. This is a repeated pattern in his retelling of Israel's story. Joseph's brothers were driven by jealousy. They sold him into Egypt, but God was with him. Moses, even as a baby, that must have stood out to you, did it? Even as a baby, he was beautiful in the sight of God. And yet, even though the enslaved Israelites knew the promise that God would release them after 400 years in that land, what did they do to Moses when he turned up? They thrust him aside. That's verse 27. And they said to him, who made you a ruler and a judge over us? And yet still God used that Moses, whom they rejected, to save them. Even after that, when God gave His law through Moses, verse 39, our fathers refused to obey Him and thrust Him aside. The prophets who were sent from God to call Israel back to God, Stephen's getting to the end of his sermon, verse 52, which of the prophets that their fathers not persecute. Rejection of God is normal. Indeed, these religious leaders who have put Stephen on trial, they're the ones who have blasphemed against the law of Moses. They've rejected the words of Moses who spoke of this prophet like him who would rise up They rejected the words of the prophets who spoke of the righteous one who would come. Because Jesus did come. And just like happened to Joseph, just like happened to Moses, just like happened to all the prophets, they rejected him. They tried to wipe him out. But God was with him. And through even those wicked acts, God rescued humanity from sin. Stephen shows us that throughout Israel's history, the majority have been on the wrong side of history. The wrong side of history is not what's unpopular. The wrong side of history is not what's in the minority. It is what is opposed to God. And this repeating cycle goes on and on, doesn't it? And it cycles round and it comes to your door today. Stephen tells us in his speech here that Jesus Christ is the centerpiece of all of human history. He is the one on whom the whole of history turns. Human beings were made for God, made to trust Him, made to reflect His goodness in the world. But you don't need me to tell you that the history of the human race has been anything but that. And it's because of what the Bible calls sin. And yet from the beginning, God promised He would send a rescuer, someone who would deliver us from our sin by destroying its power. You see, sin enslaves us, sin kills us, sin makes us liable to God's judgment. And what Jesus does is He bears on the cross the penalty that sin deserves. He defeats death that sin brings through His resurrection from the grave. And the enslavement to sin is broken by the Holy Spirit, who gives us new life in Christ. This is the only way to be right with God. And as you're presented with this greatest figure in all of history, which side of history will you land? Rejection of God is normal, don't settle for normal. Here, these Jewish leaders are confronted again. Now, by the Lord's spokesperson, Stephen. What will they do with him? Will they respond to Jesus Christ in faith, or will they let history, this wicked history, repeat itself again? Read with me from verse 54 of Acts 7. Now, when they heard these things, they were enraged and they ground their teeth at him. But he, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven. Receive my spirit. And falling to his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. Well, it's here that we see the verdict delivered, isn't it? The trial doesn't actually get a formal conclusion. Instead, those who try him are overtaken with rage. Still unable to answer Stephen's wisdom, they rush at him with what could only be described as an unbridled fury. They're gnashing their teeth like wild animals, and they murder him. They cast him out of the city, and as was the law, starting with the witnesses, those who knew their testimony to be false, they stone Stephen to death. What was their verdict on him? They had decided that he was scum. He deserved to die. The Jesus whom he represents and represents so well needs to be gone. But I don't know if you spotted here, there's a second verdict delivered in these verses. And that verdict is revealed by what Stephen sees in verse 55. Full of the Holy Spirit, Stephen gazes into heaven. He saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. He tells his attackers what he sees. And this infuriates them all the more. Because what he's saying is that He's setting Jesus alongside God. Jesus is sharing in the glory of God. This is precisely what they reject. But this is what Stephen sees. You know, when Jesus is described in the Scriptures as being at the right hand of God, He is generally described as sitting. This is the only time, I think, that we read of him standing there. Why? Well, because Jesus, the true judge, is delivering his verdict on his servant, and he stands to welcome him home. And this is Stephen's understanding. You see this in verse 59. He prays, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And it is surely because he is going to be with Jesus, because Jesus is the true judge. That Stephen's last words, they don't need to be words of hatred towards his murderers. Instead, they echo the words of Christ on the cross. Look at that in verse 60, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. It is this sense of the the reality of going to be with Jesus that enables the follower of Jesus to have peace. I mean, how extraordinary those closing words of the chapter are. When he had said this, he fell asleep. Doesn't get any more peaceful than that, does it? he fell asleep. He laid his head down in peace, and he slept. And there watching was a man named Saul. They laid their coats at his feet, verse 58. He had never seen anything quite like it. On this day, his conscience was pricked, when he saw the wisdom, the demeanor, and the death of this servant of Christ. What could ever explain how this man spoke and how this man died? Nothing other than Jesus Christ himself. I've often thought about how could they get away with killing Stephen? You know, when it came to wanting to kill the Lord Jesus, it's mentioned there in the Gospels that they didn't have the authority to do it. They had to get the Romans to do it for them. But here they cast Stephen out of the city and they stoned him to death. How could they get away with it? I'll tell you why. Because Stephen was nobody. In this world's eyes, Stephen was nobody. There was going to be no rumpus about overstepping your authority and killing this man, But you know what? Stephen was a somebody because Stephen knew Jesus Christ. And on the day when this nobody was stoned to death outside Jerusalem, the Son of God stood from his throne and welcomed him into glory. And there could scarcely be a more beautiful picture of this ghastly death. there is such a power in Stephen's witness. His confidence is clearly in Christ. How else could someone consider the gospel a message worth dying for? That's because he knew that Jesus' verdict is the only one that counts. Even in the turmoil of the world all around us, Jesus is the one fully in control, and he
0: keeps those who belong to him forever.